0: Philippians 3.8 the Apostle Paul is writing here and he says indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings becoming like Him in His death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. When we are talking about stepping into significance, let me tell you something about all of us. All of us either are or have spent time looking for identity and significance in this life. I can't tell you how many people that I have dialogued with both before I was a Christian and since becoming a Christian at the age of 24 who who were searching for who they are. I think it was probably typified in the song of my generation when Bono sang, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Beautiful song. I love it. It just gives expression to that searching of the human heart where it's like we know just innately we're all looking for something outside of ourselves to where the pieces fit together, where where things find their anchor, where, where we get the center of our orbit. And the world that you're living in offers you so many different things to assign uh, your identity or to find your identity in. And when I'm reading through the Scripture, I'm finding that one of the repeated recurring themes is more about you being than you doing. And the danger of us doing and doing and doing is that it is easy to do without knowing who we are. And if we are doing and doing and doing without knowing who we are, we have no understanding, no comprehension, no assurance that we're actually doing what we were meant to do because we never learned out who we were or figured out who we were. And so a lot of this series and thresholds you're going to find this recurring theme of your identity in Jesus. And perhaps one of the most emphatic passages about your identity and what proceeds or flows from that identity is found in this passage that we just read today. It's the Apostle Paul. Now I didn't have time to read verses 1-7, through but I am going to summarize them for you before I get down into verse 8. The first seven verses of the book of Philippians Paul is challenging his opponents they're known as the Judaizers or the dogs or the concision. Um, he is challenging people who are trying to drag Christians back to the law. And they're trying to, he's trying to tell them with no, no uncertain terms that all of the things that made up his Jewish pedigree, his uh, resume, his heritage as one of the most uh, prominent Jews of his day, Paul says, I, I got rid of all of those things as my identity. Paul was zealous religiously. He persecuted the church. He was in the tribe of Benjamin which was a preeminent tribe among the 12 tribes of Israel. He was a one who retained his Jewishness even though he lived in a uh, Hellenistic culture. And so he didn't give in to the world and he was a Pharisee and he was one of those that just uh, uh, portrayed to everybody what what a fitting Hebrew looks like in the first century to the extent that he hated Christ and he hated the Christians when Jesus was ministering and ultimately Paul would have been at that time Saul of Tarsus rejoicing at the crucifixion of Jesus. And then Saul made it his mission to destroy the church. The the, the shepherd had been smitten and now I'll destroy the sheep would have been Paul's motto, Saul's motto. And then when Saul was confronted on the road to Damascus he had a radical conversion the risen, resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ appeared to Saul of Tarsus, and Saul was radically converted and immediately submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. And in these, those days where his whole world was shaken apart by that encounter with the Son of God, Saul of Tarsus realized, everything I've been living for is worthless now that I've met Christ. And he says so in Philippians 3 verses 1-7. through 7. He says, and he's using accounting terms, he said, I used to have these things in my credit side. These were my assets. I had my Jewish pedigree. I had the things that I did, the knowledge that I had, the clan that I came from, my, my adherence to the Jewish law. All of these things, I was blameless. I was the man, in essence. Paul said that. He said, but when I met Jesus, I took all of those things that were a credit to me, and then they became a debit. I moved them out of the asset category, and I realized now that I met Jesus, those things were actually a liability to me. What had happened? When he met Jesus, he began to see who God was, and he began to see who he himself was, and he recognized none of that stuff I was doing gave me what I was looking for. His was in a religious context. We may not have. That same kind of angle on our life, but a lot of American Christians are living to make more money, to get a bigger bigger house, to have nicer things, to be more beautiful, to experience more pleasure. And in and of themselves those things aren't wrong. But if you're living for those things or your identity is in those things, uh, those are liabilities to you, not assets. And so by the time we get to verse number 8, what we're going to see is Paul stepping out of his old life and stepping into a life of significance. And that significance is tethered to the person of Jesus Christ and what he had done for Paul. So let's start with what I see very clearly in verses 8 and 9. This is an exchange of values. When you're stepping into significance and if you're ever going to live a life that matters for eternity, making your life count, not just here but beyond here, then these are things that I think you're going to have to give some consideration to. The exchange of values in verses 8 and 9 involve three things. First of all, Saul, Paul at this time, acknowledged new priorities. In verse 8 he says this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul said this, All those things that used to be my identity, all of those things that made me feel good about myself, all of those things that gave me a standing in the community, all those things that made me feel right before a holy God, all of my religion, all of my pedigree, all of my accomplishments, all of what I believed, he said I had to abandon those things. Could you imagine if God called you out of everything you had known, Everything you had assigned to yourself giving you identity, everything you were good at, all of the people in your life, all of the the, the arena in which you trafficked and live day in and day out, could you imagine if God calls you out of that and calls you in to something better? In order to step into something better though you'll have to leave this, and that's exactly what had happened to Paul in his conclusion some 30 years later. Remember Philippians is written about 30 years after all of this began to take place in Paul's life. Paul said, yeah, those things that I lost I actually now see them losing them as gain to me. He says, I count all of my life as loss. Why? Because now the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. Paul, let me mark this down, Paul was a fanatic for Jesus and expected all of us to be fanatics for Jesus too. Paul was not a 20th, 21st Western Christian. Who had enough of Jesus to get his ticket punched to heaven but then got to live his own life his own way. Paul sets up this paradigm of God calling us out of this world and into Christ more deeply for our significance. Now in order for this to happen there's going to need to be what I see also in verse 8. An embracing of full surrender. Look at what Paul says. He says, for Christ's sake, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, you have perhaps in this building seven or eight different English translations. And I love this verse because it's colorful in all of them. Uh, in the King James, which is what I uh, was uh, nurtured on. I'm <laughs> All my King James friends are like, yeah, say something good about the King James. Well, I cut my teeth on the King James. And the King James actually has the best uh, accurate translation of this word here translated um, as, uh, what did it translate it as? Uh, rubbish. King James, Dung and even that is being polite. In the Greek the word is actually kind of a socially unacceptable expletive that Paul used a kind of a grab-your-attention word. And he said, yeah, all that pedigree that I had, all those accomplishments that I had, when I turned loose at them they looked like a big heaping steaming pile of manure. That's what Paul said. Don't get mad at me. It's in your Bible. That's what he was saying. And he said, the reason why I had to view all of that in that way, because listen, Paul was disciplined. Paul was outwardly moral. Paul was principled. I mean, these in and of themselves aren't bad things. Don't you want to be principled and moral? Don't you want to live a life in, in sincere devotion towards the Lord? The problem was, is Paul had taken his security in his performance before God. Paul had taken his security and what he could accomplish and what could he do and outpacing his friends. And when he turned loose of it, he said, man, now that I look back on that, it's, it's got flies buzzing on it, man. That's just bad. He had to embrace a full surrender. He had to let go of everything. I, I know that this doesn't get preached a whole lot anymore, and it's, it's a shame that it doesn't. But you do realize that God is still calling people to forsake everything, every comfort, every accomplishment, every attainment, every possession. He's still calling individuals to forsake that and walk in a radical devoted commitment to Jesus Christ. Now it doesn't get proclaimed enough. I probably don't proclaim it enough. But the fact of the matter is is that we we assume that that's for the other guy out there somewhere, the other lady out there somewhere. But for, for Paul he said this, I had to turn loose of all of it in full surrender. You know, it's, it's one thing for us to, to, to acknowledge the worth of Jesus above all other things. It's an entirely different thing to turn loose of all of those other things and pursue Him. And so it's easy to sing, but it's, uh, obviously it requires full surrender to live. Uh, verse number 9 in the beginning of it, he, here is, here is uh, the beginning of Paul's thirst. As he's exchanging his values and involves uh, priorities and surrender, it's proactively engaging in a higher pursuit. Paul makes this mention of being found in him. He said, I I wanted to turn loose of everything so that I could gain Christ and be found in him. What's he speaking of there? Paul said, I want the whole context for my identity and my life to point back to Jesus. Paul didn't see himself as a a tent maker who dabbled in Christianity or a religious guy who dabbled in in all things Jesus. It wasn't a side dish to his life. Paul would have said it's the main entree, it's the beverage I'm drinking, it's the meal that I'm eating, it's the dessert, it's the side salad. Everything I, I am consuming is about Jesus because I have been consumed by Jesus. Now I understand that that's not the norm that we have modeled for us today. And I dare risk it. I told you this wasn't about your comfort zone today. Maybe a lot of Christians are living up without a sense of significance is because they are dancing around issues like these. Maybe, maybe we are dabbling in Jesus just enough to get a, a feel-good on, on the weekend, but then the rest of the week we, we struggle in some, some displaced identity. Well, he, his higher pursuit was this. Everything that I want about my life, I want it to be found In Christ, and ultimately, Paul says, I want to be found in Him. I I, I want my life to be hid with Christ in God. I know it's a theological fact, but I want to experience that reality. Uh, Just, I'll throw this in there. You you do know you're supposed to experience your theology, right? (laughs) Thank you, Bruce. I appreciate that. Me and Bruce agree. Um, Theology sometimes seems to stay flat on paper. We read it, we read it, we parse it, we debate it, we, you know, sometimes we fight over it and and everything, and then ultimately we draw a theological conclusion. I don't want to know any theology that I can't live. I I don't want to say I believe something and then fail to live it. And so what, what, what Paul is saying here is, I want to be found in Jesus, okay? Paul, amen, I want to too. And Paul would say to me, well, Jeff, you're going to have to be consistently, constantly changing if you want to remain in Christ. Not in the sense of salvation, but in the sense of our identity and significance. And so, you uncomfortable yet? There's still time. Verse number 10. Let's go down. Oh, well, actually, look at verse number 9. How does Paul explain this? He talks about experiencing a deeper rest. Look at verse number nine. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now watch, watch this here. Paul's struggle, his, his life struggle that he's alluding to was this. I was trying to earn righteousness with God. I was trying to do enough to be acceptable to God. And so Paul's identity was about crossing the right T's, dotting the right I's, walking the right walk, not most of the time, but if you ask Paul, he would have said, I wanted to do it all of the time. And so Paul was living under this this immense pressure of Hebrew law to do all things right by the Torah so that hopefully in the end, if he kept churning it out, he would have lived a life that was acceptable to God. And by the way, he was doing it in sincerity. He was doing it in full sincerity. He was doing it in a way that he thought he was honoring the Lord. And yet now that he had met Christ, he realized how foolish of me to try to earn that which has infinite value. How foolish of me to try to earn what I now have seen with my own eyes, the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of the Son of God, and I tried to earn that by doing good things. And that is why he was able to say, the good things in and of themselves aren't bad, but because I tried to earn something from God by them, that's why they're rubbish, now here's his deeper rest. He walked away from that false identity. He walked away from his religious performance. He walked away from trying to earn a gift. And so now he's able to say, now I have the righteousness of God through my faith in Christ. In other words, he had to humble himself and realize my identity's in Jesus. Jesus did all the heavy lifting. I receive it. And so that is where this exchange of identity comes. Now, the the difficulty for you and the difficulty for me is that we're probably, most of us, not trying to earn anything like that from God. It's a little bit of a different scenario. We're trying to earn something from the world. We're asking the world to assign us our significance. And so, ladies, if you're going to be significant in the world, you better go after beauty, and you better maintain it. And by the way, if, if you're ever going to feel real comfortable, make sure you're comparing yourselves with other people. And by the way, if you want to get good at that, compare yourself with those less attractive than you. And then, by the way, when you meet somebody more attractive than you, because your identity is in your beauty, you're going to feel threatened. And and then guys, money, success, attainments, accomplishments. If if I am better than my neighbor, if I am better than the other guy, if I do more, get more, experience more, enjoy more, if I can make a name for myself, I'm going to be significant. Significant. And until you're not anymore, because listen, I'm not being rude here, but time does away with beauty as the world defines it. And guys, we can only work, you know, four score and then we're done. So, so what am I saying here? I'm saying if, if we're going to find our identity in something, it better be something that lasts forever. otherwise you're going to lose your identity along the way. And so what Paul is saying here in his world, his identity was religious performance. And I'm just going to ask us all here, do we need an exchange of values? Where are you taking your identity from? Most of us are taking our identity from uh, some good things, but they may not be resting in Christ. I know this is a little broad stroke, so let's go further and see if we can bring it more pinpointedly home. Let's go from this exchange of values to an exchange of purpose. When we're talking about stepping into significance we're somewhere along the line we got to ask what are we doing with our lives? Not just who are we, identity, but what is our activity because activity flows from identity. If you've got the wrong identity you're going to have erroneous activity. And what we try to do is we try to extract our identity out of our activity. And so let's, let's just look at purpose here. I love verse number 10. I want you to love it too. And when we're talking about an exchange of purpose, look at the beginning of verse number 10. Paul's primary thirst. This is what drives Paul in day-to-day to, day to, day to day living. That I may know Him. And he's going to talk about the power of His resurrection in a moment. But this, what drove Paul Paul once wrote to a different audience, I want you to be imitators like me. Follow those who walk like me. That sounds arrogant, but it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, the Holy Spirit says we should mark certain believers, learn from them, and then do what they do if we want to live as they live. And so Paul has already declared to the Corinthians, I want you to be an imitator of me. So I take that to be, it's a good idea for Jeff Lyle in the 21st century in America to emulate the Apostle Paul and his values and his priorities and his purposes 2,000 years ago in Palestine. Where do we begin? Paul said, I want to know him. I want to know him. Remember, he'd been saved 30 years when he wrote that. Paul had more enlightenment more revelation probably more spiritual gifting he, he has made an impact on the known world as perhaps the greatest christian who ever lived had been caught up to the third heaven had seen visions committed signs wonders raise the dead open the ears of the deaf and the eyes of the blind and the, loose the tongues of of those that were mute he he, he, he dispatched demons out of people and rescued them he got in the face of religious bullies and set them straight. He wasn't above correcting the brethren from time to time. And, and Paul's writing this letter to the, the church at Philippi, and he's saying, man, I just want to know Jesus. I just, I just want to know him. A lot of us would raise our hand and say, well, Paul, aren't you saved? Because you're saved, you know him, right? Friends, there's a big difference in knowing the Lord objectively. Versus knowing him intimately and experientially. Objective faith is necessary. We learn what we learn about Christ from the word of God. That's God's self-revelation. But do you realize that you can know all about him and never have contact? I, I believe I spent years as a Christian and it'd be like Jesus would visit me in prison. I I, I was saved, but for whatever reason, I'm still stuck in my cell. And I I don't know if you've ever done jail ministry or been on either end of that. But when when you go to visit somebody in in a decently secure prison, you're going to walk in and you talk to them through a phone and there's a plate glass window. You can see through it. And I can't tell you how many times I put my hand on that plexiglass window and an inmate will put his hand on the other side of it. And you're, you're just longing for human contact, but that's as close as you can get. That's the way my Christianity felt for a long time. I could see clearly who Jesus was, but I didn't know what it was like to embrace him. I didn't know what it was like to feel him. Didn't mean I didn't feel good, and you know, you get in a good vibe and a good worship service, all that. It wasn't that. It was that I, I, I just didn't know what it was like to be to be spiritually intimate with him. And Paul is saying not that he doesn't know what it's like to be intimate with the Lord. He's saying, yeah, the more intimate he becomes to me, the more I want intimacy with him. You see, love begets love. Passion begets passion. Joy produces a thirst for more joy. And and, and Jesus made this great beatitude. He says, blessed are those that hunger and thirst. After righteousness, they're the ones that are going to be filled. So you've got this principle in Scripture. That the the calling, the primary thirst of the Christian life is not to do things for the Lord. That's not taking away from all the needs in a local church and the calls to ministry and serve like that, but that's not the primary thirst for a Christian. It's not about doing, it's about being. And forgive me if that sounds cliche, but it only sounds cliche to those of you that don't know it. It's not cliche, it's about being His. You know, I, I look at Mary and Martha in that old scene, and, and there's validity to both of what the two sisters were doing. But who was, who was more blessed in that scene? Mary was, because Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. There was a lot of work that needed to be done. And Martha couldn't bear to let the work go without being done. So Martha's just losing her mind trying to get the stuff ready, and she's mad at her sister, the worshiper. She seems to be a little frustrated with the son of God because he's not making the worshiper get up and serve. And, and so Martha is, 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 and Jesus just looks at her and he said, Martha, you are worked up over the lesser thing. He said, look at your sister. She's chosen the better thing for this moment. Mary was being, Martha was doing. There needs to be a little of both in our life, but I'm going to tell you something. Paul's primary thirst was to know the Lord. Uh, I'm going to make a controversial statement here. And please remember that I founded a ministry called Transforming Truths. So I'm a big Bible guy. You will never hear me discount the Bible, but I'm going to tell you something. You can read your Bible all day, every day, all year, every year. And it's not the same thing as personal encounter with Jesus. It's not. And that's not to take away from my my reverence for the scriptures. But if that's all there was, God would have just sent the Bible and not the Holy Spirit. You see, God didn't send Adam and Eve a a manuscript in the garden. He went to the garden. He walked in the garden. I'm going to say it this way. He hung out with them in the garden. It was about family and connection and interpersonal um, uh, encounter. He didn't just send an angel with a scroll saying, hey, read it. It'll tell you all you've ever wondered about the Almighty. And so, brothers and sisters, I I want to tell you, I want objective understanding of the Lord. You can't know that you're encountering the true God of the Bible apart from him him revealing himself through the Bible. You've got to know who you're meeting with because not every spirit is a Holy Spirit. So the Bible gives you the objective understanding, but friends, good night alive. I don't, you know, I've got my iPad up here. I got my phone down there. I don't just walk around all day looking at pictures of Amy. Just walking around all day. Wow, I love that woman. She is good looking, mother of my children. I love my sweet wife. And then skip going home that night. <laughs> you, know, you know how crazy that is? It's incomplete. The pictures are great. But it's not the pictures on my phone that create the intimacy in our home, it's interaction. And I want Newbridge, and I know Pastor Dustin and your other leaders here share this passion. We want, and that's what Thirst Service is about this coming Friday night. We, we, we're going to remain big Bible people, we're going to grow in that. But friends, there's another side of the story. And, and it's beautiful and it's good. And some of you are just missing that one component. And I'm not even talking about just speaking in tongues and all that stuff. I'm talking about meeting with the Lord, not at thirst service only, not just on Sundays, but wherever you go, go that your thirst says, oh, I got to know him, I got to know him, I got to know him. Man, I feel like I'm alone today, but that's okay. That's it's all right. That's all right. Paul's rare commitment. Now this is where you get to find out if you really want to do this because Paul just mentioned the, the power of his resurrection. Everybody wants that. Good night. Give me some of that. Resurrection power and Paul, Paul recognizes something. Paul said I, in my, my commitment I also want to fellowship with the Lord. I want to partner with the Lord and share his sufferings. And I want to become like him in his death. Uh, that doesn't make it into very many um, church mission statements. And what's your purpose statement down there at Newbridge? Well, we're really advancing into sharing the sufferings of Jesus. (laughs) That that doesn't mark it well. But it's in the Bible proceeding through the mouth of the guy who said, I've got to know Jesus, not just the, the sweet, easy, comforting part. But if I'm really going to know him, I'm going to have to touch the tip of the spear. I'm going to have to carry a cross. I'm going to have to know scorn and misunderstanding and rejection and, and pain, um, physical pain, relational pain. I mean, let's, let's not just get so theological that we pretend Jesus in his divinity didn't experience the hurt of abandonment in his humanity on the night he was betrayed. And sometimes we make him so divine that he's less than human. He was both don't ask me to explain that, but the fact of the matter is, is fully God, fully man, and the suffering was real. And Paul was wise enough to say, if I'm going to know Jesus, I don't want to just know the happy elements. Jesus, I, I, I want to honor and reverence you, and so if I'm going to know you, I have to taste of what you tasted. It's always going to be on a smaller level, but Paul didn't immunize or insulate himself from that. And we do. Listen, I don't want to be critical, but I do want to talk about the elephant in the room. Western Christians, look, we do everything not to ever have to rub remotely close up on coming up against suffering. I mean, we have a hard time giving up a weekend. I I don't know that I have any appetite for suffering, but I'm just going to go ahead and tell you what you already know the most lasting things you've ever learned about Jesus came through your time of suffering, not through your time of ease and victory. And yet we avoid it like the plague. And, and Paul is saying, Lord, I want to know you. I want the power of your resurrection. We, we all want that. I mean, give me some resurrection, man. I want to overcome. I want to win. I don't, I don't like losing. You say, well, Jeff, that comes off arrogant. Well, what's the opposite? Oh, I love to lose. I mean, you don't, you don't love to lose. We all like to win. We don't like to be defeated. We don't like to be discarded. We don't like to be dominated. We, we want to overcome. We want to win. And, and so I want the power of the resurrection. But what preceded the resurrection? The cross. And, and, and a lot of us have been groomed in a, in a flavor of Christianity that says, bypass the cross, go straight to the empty, dance, uh, empty tomb, and do a holy dance on the outside that we're victorious. And brothers and sisters, how can we appreciate the glory of resurrection life when we've just kind of passed over the sufferings of the cross? And what what makes us appreciate our victories and the victory that we have in Jesus is knowing Him as He's led us through the valley of the shadow of death and the hurt and the pain. So Paul had a rare commitment. I don't know if you have that, but I'm going to tell you, if we want to know Him... We can't sidestep the sense of, of this passage, this whole chapter, is, is in losing some things. We lose people we love. We lose financial things. We lose circumstantial things. We lose honor. We lose favor. My goodness, I, I, I had our, our prayer team... Uh, I don't know if you know this, but we have a small group of people that meet every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. And almost invariably, Dustin and I will get a message on Sunday morning. How can we pray for our pastors this morning? And I had to transparently share today that I am struggling with, and it's nobody in this assembly, but with somebody that is borderline maligning Pastor Dustin and myself because of the the direction that we have gone. Now this is not a person in our church, but it's a person that's taking pot shots at us because of our affiliation with people that they disagree with. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't like being misunderstood. I don't like my reputation getting sullied. I don't like the fact that they're wrong. (laughs) You know, they're representing me wrongly. And, you know, there's something unholy in me that wants to rise up like a bulldog with rabies and shred somebody. That's just the way I feel. I I didn't act on it. I'm I'm in process. Amen. God's working on me. That's the way I feel. My dad told me when I was growing up, he said, Jeff, that's before I was saved, he said, your whole attitude about your opponents is slaughter them all. And on some days that sounds valid. Amen. But the point being is this, you're going to lose your reputation with people sometimes for following Christ, for wanting to know Christ. You're going to have to face the fact that not everybody's going to like you. And if you can't come to that place, then you're not going to know him as fully as you might. And so going further down in here, look at his driving rev- revelation. Paul says that to know Him in the power of His resurrection in verse number 11, the sharing of the sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, he says, and this is the driving revelation, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Now Paul wasn't in doubt of where His eternity was secured. What he's saying is he's, he's describing again that tension between the fact that the Lord, sovereign Lord of, of Heaven saves us and secures us but we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so Paul is saying that, that there is this, this, I believe, if I can call them many resurrections, that sounds a little uh, less than, than, than reverent, but these many resurrections, you can speak, uh, uh, experience resurrections all throughout your life. Not just physically coming up from the grave at the end of the age. I'm talking about when hopelessness finds you, when, when, when depression is owning you. When the devil has bullseyed eyed you, when, when sickness that the doctors say are incurable is covering you, when, when, when somebody has betrayed you or abused you or abandoned you or assigned a false identity to you, all of these things feel like death and they have the element of death in them. But there are many resurrections, M-I-N-I, many resurrections that we can experience if we're willing to go through the suffering as he went through the suffering, trusting that as he came through the suffering and out of the suffering and emerged from the tomb victorious, that on a, on a smaller scale, whatever that little death-like circumstance is, that we can attain to that resurrection too. So, brothers and sisters, what I want to tell you is, Christians, stop giving up. Stop quitting when it's really, really hard. Stop running back to the place you were last comfortable because there's nothing there for you anymore. Go through whatever it is because you don't know what He's got for you on the breakthrough side of it. You know, it's called breakthrough, not break from. overcomers first have to be undergoers. And if we don't undergo, we won't overcome. But if we will do both, my friends, we'll experience this intimacy, this growing intimacy. Sometimes the Lord will sequester you and he'll get you alone. And you're not imagining things. You are. You're actually alone. Nobody understands. You you try to explain it and they they they're well-meaning, but they say stuff that doesn't help you. And then we, we do that because we care, but we don't have the answer. Sometimes God will put uh, an unsolvable snafu, some labyrinth in your life that you can't get out, out of with anybody's help. And, and Jesus comes and he says, I've actually gone through this labyrinth before. And I wanted you in here because I didn't want anybody else in this season with you but me. And so I I'll walk through this whole thing with you. And and you'll get to know me as we walk through this. And sometimes we say, well, Lord, how about since you're God, why don't you just lift me up above the labyrinth and put me on the other side? (laughs) Right? Is that not us? And the Lord Lord says, no, I actually am going to teach you some things about how to navigate this labyrinth because when I get you through it, I'm going to put you back at the beginning and there's somebody else I've got there that I want you and I together to help them through. You follow me? So as, as we're thinking through these things, let, let me just give you this and we'll get you down to the last few verses. I, I just, I, I've got to give us this. Everyone desires the resurrection power of Jesus, but not as many, many are as willing to embrace the cross that precedes the resurrection. We all want the resurrection power, but I'm going to give you kind of the down low on this. Um, you're not going to experience resurrection if you keep avoiding your cross. It just doesn't work that way. And so as we get down to verses 12 through 15, this is really what I wanted to preach this morning, and I'm just about out of time. That's never really mattered a whole lot to me, but an exchange of direction. Verses 12 through 15, an exchange of direction, because ultimately, if we don't change our direction, I can preach this again next year, and we'll have the same response, but we'll be in the same place. So, this is about crossing a threshold. This is about you making a decision to follow Jesus somewhere where maybe you've not gone with him before. So, Lord, give us faith as we look at this. And and I'm gonna give you four things. They all begin with the word forward here. First of all, forward direction. I'm I'm going to speak so firmly on this. Look at what, what, what Paul says. He says, Not that I've already obtained this. In other words, I'm not complete, I haven't fully obtained it, or am already perfect. But look at the verbiage here. I press on. Say press on. Press on. Say it again. Press on. More. Press on. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is what Paul is saying. Paul has just described the loss of his credentials, the loss of his family, the loss of his name, the loss of his ministry, the loss of his religious prestige. He, he had lost his friends. I mean he, he was known as a Benedict Arnold of his day. He betrayed the Jews of his day. And he was misunderstood even in this current season where he's writing Philippians. The Gentiles misunderstood him. The Jewish Christians misunderstood him. He was a very misunderstood man. But this is what he said. He said, I- I've seen all of this. I know I'm not done yet. I'm not perfect yet. I've got a long way to go. But I really want to know him more than anything. I really want to know him. I want to know the heights. I want to know the power of his resurrection. But Lord, I so reverence you and honor you that I don't even want to know you and what it means to be in you through loss, through suffering, through sacrifice. I just want to know you, not in the green patches only, but in the thorny patches too. I want to know you, Lord. And so he's given us all of that and then he makes this statement. He says, but I'm not there yet. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I, I haven't gotten there yet. Paul, I mean, I would think, of myself, what more do you need? Well, here's the thing that messed Paul up. It totally messed him up. He saw Jesus Christ, and everything else was ruined. Nothing else ever impressed the man again. He was grateful, he was loving, but nothing else ever impressed him. And because he saw Jesus, he inherently knew that there is so much more inestimable value to which Paul could live his life under the Lord. In other words, it doesn't, it doesn't drape over him like this anguishing burden of, it'll never be enough, it'll never be enough. It's almost like he stands there with hands raised and he says, you're so glorious, what more can I do? It's never going to be enough, but I want in on it. So there's no defeat in it. It is a heart set free to worship, a heart that is absolutely convinced that there's nothing greater than Jesus, nothing more meaningful than his glory, nothing more important than his kingdom, nothing more lasting than his affirmation. And so Paul is at this place, and he's saying, yeah, I'm not there yet, but I I, I guess I'm going to press on. Some of you are getting hammered. You're getting hammered in life. I mean, you, you, you get hit on the left jaw, you duck it, it's an uppercut to the chin, you take a step back, somebody sucker punches you in the back of your head, and everywhere you turn, you're just getting in a season of getting pummeled. And somewhere outside of the ring on the front row is the enemy saying, you ought to just quit. You ought to just quit. Just step out of the ring. Most people do. Don't get in there and and fight for the glory of Jesus. Just quit. Matter of fact, I got a cushioned place for you right here on the front row. You just kind of sit down in your comfort zone, and we'll watch somebody else fight this fight. And and not Paul. Paul says, yeah, I'm just going to press on. Why? To make it my own. See, this is what's got to get us. Uh, Paul wasn't content to watch Peter experience the best that Jesus had to offer or Barnabas or anybody else, James. And Paul wasn't content to let it be a side, side standing spectator sport. Wow, look at that Christian go. Look at that lady go. Look at that guy go. Man, they're on fire for Jesus. Hallelujah. I'm glad I got what I got, but I'll never be like that. Paul said, No, I'm going to make it my own, actually. I'm going to press on to make it my own. I don't know who's been telling you that, about what you can't do. But you're going to have a, more voices in your life, maybe it's the voice in your head telling you no you can never do that, you can never be that, you can never accomplish that, you can never and, 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 and friend I just want to tell you that this same book, Philippians chapter 4 verse 13, what does it tell us we can do through Christ? Argue with God over the thing or just submit and say hallelujah I believe you Lord I can do it. But not if you press, don't press on. Sometimes your Christian life and the pinnacle of your faith is displayed simply by you getting up another day and doing what's right and pressing on because it's the right thing to do and He's worthy of your endurance. That is probably the factor that will get you more victory than anything else in life. The fact that you just say, you know what, I haven't made it my own yet. I haven't attained unto the fullness. I haven't haven't received everything that Christ has provided. So I'm going to press on. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me His own. I'll just give you this quick nugget. I mean, you can never fully arrive in this life, but you can always grow. I, I, love the, I love the counsel. It's not the counsel. It's a mandate from Scripture. Husbands, love your wives like Jesus loves the church. I, 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 and the, the, the counter to that is uh, wives, submit yourselves under your own husbands as under the Lord. And I'm just going to be a man here. Just going to be a guy. I actually think the guys have the harder mandate. I think loving Amy like Jesus loves the church is harder than her having to follow me as under the Lord. Why? Because I can teach my dog to submit. An animal can learn to submit. All of us can affect our will and say, I'm just going to do it. All humans can do that if we want to. But loving like Jesus loves the church, my goodness. I will never love this precious woman like Jesus loves the church. I'll never arrive in this life having, 20 years from now, Amy, I just want you to know I was thinking about it yesterday. Yeah, I've arrived. I love you perfectly just like Jesus loves the church. So can we throw me a party? Amen. (laughs) It'll never happen. But let me tell you what does happen in my pursuit of loving her like Jesus loves the church she will be immensely loved. I may never arrive. Paul is saying, Paul is telling the people there, he's saying, I won't attain it in this life, but I'm pressing on. And it's in the pressing on, though you never fully reach the goal down here, it's in the pressing on that you start finding the significance to your life. You don't quit, you don't back out, you don't stop. Why? Because of the infinite value of who Jesus Christ is. So it's forward direction. I want you to just say this with me. I've decided to move forward. Say it. I've decided to move forward. I want some of you that have decisions to make right now that you're wrestling with. It means you're going to have to lose some things, but you're, you're just heaven bent on doing the right thing. I want you to say this with conviction. I have decided to move forward. I have decided to move forward. The other thing is forward discipline. Verse number 13. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but this one thing I do. This one thing I do, this one thing I do, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I love it. I love it. I love it. By the way, if you're wondering, this is why I wanted to preach this text, because of this phrase. When you're stepping into significance, let me tell you what you can't bring with you. Yesterday. When you are stepping into significance... You make the decision to move today, you're moving into or towards tomorrow, but you cannot bring yesterday with you, even if it was a good day. I hope you had a great yesterday and last year and last decade. I hope it was just rocking. I hope it was the best of the best for you. You will not bring it into your tomorrow. God is actually done working on yesterday. He's not going to go back and work on yesterday. He's done with it. And yet, so many of us are convinced that we got to fix yesterday to enjoy today and step into tomorrow. And the fact of the matter is, yesterday can't be fixed. It is history. And that doesn't mean we can't address some things that uh, kind of ripple affected out from yesterday. But we, we, we so often long for the future, but we're entrenched in yesterday. And I love what Paul said. This is Bible, friends. This isn't Dr. Phil. This is Bible. What is the counsel? What is the the testimony? He said, this is the one thing. He's actually kind of sequestering this as a very important thing. One thing I'm doing, I am forgetting about yesterday. Sometimes faith is you mustering up the willpower for the glory of Jesus saying, Lord, my heart is still rooted in some things of yesterday. I still feel yesterday. I can't seem to shake yesterday, but I'm not going to live there anymore. And that means you've got to bury some things. There are only two things that I do, and I don't want to be sensitive here, at a graveside. I make an initial deposit in the graveside. Then I cover it up and I walk away. It would not be healthy for anybody to bury a loved one in a grave and then build a house right next to it so all you did was live in the memory of that person. The, the second thing I do with a grave is I go there every now and then, very rarely, just for a moment of remembrance. And so there, are, there is some validity and learning from yesterday, but I'm gonna tell you something, it is dead and buried. It's gone. Something bad happened to you yesterday or in your past? Listen, you got a lot of people who love to help you and shepherd you through that minister to you don't go through it alone but you cannot live there anymore you cannot live there was yesterday your heyday man i tell you what i was rocking in 1982 <laughs> i had my trans am with the t-tops i had my mullet i had my gold chain i had my big ray bands on i was living high i was rocking it <laughs> y'all can tell i was in my prime in the 80s but that's a <laughs> Hey, you know, the, the, the 80s were pretty good 30 years ago. They're horrible today. You know why? They don't exist. It's history. So quit living off of the fumes of what you once were because you're getting, you're getting intoxicated on what you're, from what you're supposed to be right now. Paul said, I just forget these things. And then he says, I'm straining forward. He already said, press on. Notice the verbs the Holy Spirit put in here. Pressing forward straining forward that's not casual that's not oh i just believe god is sovereign over everything and he'll bring to me what he wants to bring to me friends that kind of rot man that just kind of bugs the fire out of me if i can speak plainly that's just an excuse for being idle you know you're supposed to go after it right yeah i appreciate the fact that we rest in jesus but rest does not equal putting your feet up on a chase lounge drinking sweet tea while every everything else in the kingdom carries on without you Strain forward to what He's got for you. Strain forward to knowing Christ. Strain forward to that resurrection experience of of knowing Jesus. It's forward determination in verse 14. Forward determination. I press on. There's another type A kind of phrase. Pressing on, straining forward. He had already said press on. Why? Toward the goal for the prize. That means there's a reason, there's a purpose, there's something out there for you. Don't, don't ask me to tell you what it is. I'm, I'm not Jesus. I, I, I don't know. It's different for all of us, but it's, it's in the context of who He is and, and, and learning Him and knowing Him and growing in Him and walking with Him. And it is in that intimacy that you will learn in that, in that, in that context of being that you will become aware of what you're to be doing. And, and again, I, I don't want to be the type of leader or be a part of a church that is constantly forcing do, 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 do down people's throats. No do-do, amen? No, no, we're not doing that around here. It's, a, it's, it's being. <laughs> we're human beings, not, oh man, that's going to have to get edited out. <laughs> we are, help me, Jesus. Help me, Lord. We are human beings. And so the, the, the fact of this is, is, is that we got, we got to strain forward. You've heard some of us use the phrase pressing into him. Pressing into him. You say, Jeff, what does that mean? You know, I, I don't know how to define it, but I, I, know, I know how to do it. It's hunger. It's a refusal to give in to lesser loyalties, to settle in a comfort zone that wasn't assigned for you. Every single one of us in here, we're destined for significance because of who we are in Christ. But if we don't press on toward the goal, toward the goal, the goal's not behind you. The goal's in front of you. There's just a word going out in this place today that some of you are just holding on to even the immediate present or the historical past. The biggest battles we fought in the context of Meadow and New, uh, Cornerstone and our individual uh, things were just people trying to preserve the past. Preserve the past because it was comfortable for them, even though God wasn't doing anything there. God's done with the past; He's moving us collectively and you individual, individually towards the future for the prize. I like prizes, man. I got a little—I got enough little boy in me. I didn't even like Cracker Jacks, but I would. My dad take me to the Seven-Eleven when I was seven years old. He said, "What you want?" I'd be like. I'll take a box of those Cracker Jacks. Well, Jeff, you don't like Cracker Jacks. There's a prize in it. I'd eat cereal. Did y'all ever do this? I don't know if they still do it. I would dig through a box of cereal. Dig through it. Raisin Bran, I hate Raisin Bran, but there's a, there's a 25 cent car down at the bottom of that thing. It's gonna break in four hours, but I want it, you know? Why, as a prize. Are you living with that baited spirit that says, man, there's just actually something to all of this. The Lord has something for me. Or have you settled? And so the last verse, and I am done, thank you for being patient, for discernment. Verse 15, I almost left it out, but but look at what Paul wrote. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Think what way? We'll go back and read the first 14 chapters. Excuse me, first 14 verses. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And watch what he does. And if you think, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. If that wasn't inspired scripture, I would say, man, Paul just kind of manipulated the crowd there. You know what he said? Paul said, I'm right. And if you're mature, you're going to agree with me. If you don't, God will show you. That's exactly what he's saying. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write that down. Literally, Paul said, everything I've said is true about forgetting the past, about pressing on to the future, about suffering with Jesus, about hungering for Him and wanting to know Him, about forsaking your credentials and all of your attainments and all your accomplishments. Paul said, all of that needs to happen. I'm right, but if you don't think I'm right, take it up with the Lord because He's going to say amen to what I just wrote. And so if it was true for Paul and it was true for the church at Philippi, isn't it true for us? So what are you going to do with it? Because ultimately that's the question. What do I do with this? I want you to stand to your feet. Worship team, come on. The best amen to to a sermon is decisive action. That's the best amen to a sermon, one that's biblical is a commitment. I, man, I mean, I just don't want to be vague this morning. I just believe the Lord wants to free some of you up from walking away from a messy, maybe even a painful past. Instead of spending another five to ten years waiting for that thing to feel pretty again. If it was ugly, it was ugly, and you got to walk away from the grave you got to bury it. I, and I, I get it. I'm oversimplifying things, but you may have been overcomplicating things. It may be that you feel that you can't walk away because that's, that, that thing in your past, whether good or not so good, is part of your identity now, something you accomplished or something that happened to you. And it's, it's blurring God's vision over your life or God's vision for your life. I'm going to tell you by the authority of the gospel, your identity is in Jesus Christ. And that identity is stronger than anything else that you've ever done or has happened to you. Your identity is in Jesus. I'm telling you, take a step into that. Take a step into it. Don't listen to the 50 offshoot questions. Well, if I do that, what if? No, 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 no. Press on. There are some things you have to forget. If this is a new season in your life and God's already writing it, quit quit rereading the last chapter.